Welcome to On the Edge with Sick, the podcast where healthcare meets design with your hosts, Nita and Sylvia. Hi, everyone. Today in our podcast, we welcome Dr. Natasha Datu. Natasha is a pediatric oncologist, hematologist, and a pediatric palliative care physician. She works as an attending pediatric hematology oncology doctor at British Columbia Children's Hospital. And as well, she also works as a palliative care physician at Canuck Place Children's Hospice. Also a clinical instructor with the University of British Columbia, Natasha enjoys teaching medical students, residents, and fellows about pediatric oncology and palliative care. In her spare time, Natasha volunteers with Two Worlds Cancer Collaboration to promote and teach palliative care in Southeast Asia. She also is a volunteer consultant for Doctors Without Borders. When she's not working, I don't really know when that is, she loves hiking with her husband and English bulldog and exploring different areas of British Columbia. Fun fact, Natasha is also my cousin. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks, Natasha. We start with asking all of our guests, what does On the Edge mean to you? To me, I think it means different things on different days, to be honest. Like, Mm -hmm. if I'm having a day where I'm having a great day, like, I'm feeling productive, things are getting sorted out, you know, it's a good day, I get to tell someone that their child is cancer-free. I feel like on the edge maybe means that I'm, you know, pushing boundaries and I'm helping to solve complicated problems, whether it's within the healthcare system or help sort out one patient's complicated symptoms. I feel like on the edge in those days means that I'm about to get a breakthrough on, you know, something really hard that I've been trying to sort out with a family or a patient. And so I think it's like a positive thing on most days. And then I think for sure, like if I'm having a bad day or, you know, been really hard at work I think on the edge could be on the edge of I don't know a breakdown or you know you know screaming out the window and then feeling better so I think it I think it depends for me I think I I have an emotional job and I think on the edge is definitely I think of it as a good thing on most days but I think there are bad days and I think it could mean you know on the edge of having a really bad day yeah, oh, that response. <laughs> Every one of our guests has such a different take on what that on the edge means to them. So thank you. So we're going to move on to asking you about um, your personal journey. And we wanted to dive into your background, your passions and your work. Yeah, for sure. So I am um, growing up. I always, always wanted to be a doctor for the very cliche reason of wanting to help people. Um, Very early on, I knew I wanted to go into pediatrics and medicine. And then, um, so I, you know, did all my training through that. I was very, very lucky. I got into medical school in Ontario. And then um, I got introduced to the world of pediatric oncology when I was doing my pediatric residency training in London, Ontario. And I kind of fell in love with, um, which I'm a fixer, like I like to fix problems. Um, mm. And oncology is, is is fixing problems in a way, you know, the child's are 
person has cancer, you know, you, you figure out what it is and then you come up with a treatment plan to fix it and get rid of it. That's kind of the basic principles of oncology. So, um, I think a lot people go into medicine for different reasons. You know, some people like solving a mystery. So you go into other areas where, you know, it's not as much about just fixing things. It's more about figuring out what is causing things. But that's definitely not me. So um, I very much fell in love with pediatric oncology for some of those reasons. Um, I also really love getting to know families. So, you know, things like emergency room medicine or ICU wasn't for me because you don't really get long-term relationships with um, most of the families and children you take care of. So for, for some of those reasons, pediatric oncology was sort of something I very quickly decided I wanted to do. Um, so I moved to BC from Ontario in 2015 to do my pediatric oncology training here at BC Children's. Um, and then every, every one of us who goes through that training um, is mandated by our training kind of body, the Royal College, to do one month of pediatric palliative care. Because unfortunately, that is still part of pediatric oncology. There is a small percentage of kids who don't survive. And so I spent uh, a month at Connect Place Children's Hospice, which is um, what our pediatric palliative care um, service is here in BC. Um, Connect Place Children's Hospice is the first was the first pediatric hospice in North America. It's it, it's pretty special. It's this very special old mansion, you know, a, a few blocks away from the hospital with this beautiful garden oasis outside, and you know, a whole group of people who just scoop up and take care of sick children and their families. Um, and I I remember stepping in there like my first day of my first month, and I was you know a, a younger trainee, and I. I was nervous because I was like, this is going to be sad, right? Like palliative care, pediatric palliative care, it's going to be sad. And I kind of walked into this house, which is a, which is the hospice. And like immediately I heard like kids laughing and I heard like, you know, siblings running up and down the stairs. And I heard like we have cooks and chefs who make meals who were laughing and just cooking and baking for kids. And, you know, it really was completely different than what I thought it would be. Um, and I kind of fell in love with pediatric palliative care in that minute. So I finished my oncology training and um, I went on to do a second fellowship in pediatric palliative care with Connect Place. And then now I get to work in both fields. So I spend half my time in pediatric oncology, um, which is an acute care kind of service at the hospital at BC Children's. And then I spend the other half of my time um, at Connect Place Children's Office doing pediatric palliative care. So I love bridging the two. I love getting to work in two places. I love kind of being the continuity for both of those teams who, who work very closely together um, and really kind of blurring those lines between the two. So um, yeah, that's how I kind of ended up in my, my current job. <laughs> I just really love that story, Natasha. That's really amazing. Um, what is the biggest challenge facing you right now? Yeah, I think, you know, if I think on the broader term, I think one of the biggest challenges facing me in sort of healthcare, and, and obviously this is not biased, but I, I, I have a very specific kind of patient population that I see in pediatric oncology and pediatric palliative care. So they are probably the most complicated pediatric patients, you know, you see in medicine. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things I'm very fortunate is I work in 
two fields that are very resourced. Um, so I don't think that's an issue. I think if you were talking to a different kind of doctor, that would be, you know, an emergency room doctor or, you know, a, a, a community family doctor, they would say different things, which is interesting. But for me, my, my patients and the divisions I work in were very resource rich because, you know, children with cancer or children who are potentially dying um, get a lot of funds, <laughs> whether it's government or community um, fundraising. But I think one of the biggest challenges that I see in my patient population is we're, because we have so much you know, technology is better, medicine's better, that's all great, but we're increasing the complexity of the children that are surviving without the infrastructure and the support to support families in caring for these kids who are now mm -hmm. at home with way more support, way more technology that are keeping them alive. And we've done that, and that's in some situations great but at the same time that means that these families are trying to take care of their kids without the actual infrastructure and supports that they need so I think that you know medicine has shifted we're keeping kids alive with newer technologies newer you know targeted therapies we're turning you know acute life-threatening diseases into chronic diseases in pediatrics which Again, like I said, is it's not a bad thing, but w I think it's moving quickly that we we don't we don't have the resources to support families in that, and I see how hard it is for for moms and dads and caregivers um, to have to you know take on that that nurse that doctor role at home, and it's 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 very hard, and I think you know kids are coming in and out of hospital again with 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 just lack of support in those situations. And I think that's, you know, that's where the pediatric palliative care approach, I think is, um, is I think most beneficial. And I'm sure we can talk about that at some point, but I think, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that, that I see um, in my patient population in the last, you know, even three to four years, it's different now. So yeah, we want to shift uh, gears a little bit and get into the palliative care focus of your work, death and dying is really quite taboo in our society, even within healthcare settings like yours. What What are your thoughts around this taboo? Yeah, I think it's it's a really, you know, it's a really interesting concept, and I, I don't know personally. I think I wasn't aware of how taboo it is until I was involved in death and dying in my daily job. You know, I think I, I was, this is probably a bit of a weird story, but I was always a kid who I, I, not that I was like morbidly interested in death, but I remember like, you know, in, in our culture, funerals are, are kind of open to, to people in our community. And so, um, I remember, you know, asking to, to not go to school sometimes to go to funerals because I thought they were so calming and I thought they were just in general a very peaceful spiritual experience and so I, I you know I, I kind of forgot about that until I got into this field and my mom reminded me of that um, and I think so for me it, it was never really a taboo thing it was part of life but then I got into this field and you know I, I think what shocked me the most was how other healthcare providers right like we're, 
you know, other physicians, nurses, allied health, everyone um, are so scared about talking about dying, especially in patients who have a very high risk of dying, right? Like, you know, kids with cancer, you know, we have great outcomes, but we do have certain diagnoses that they're going to die of this disease. We don't have no one cures. And it, it's tiptoed around. There's, you know, and I'm not saying everyone, but I, I was like, wow, like, even as someone who has to talk to families about, you know, this very fatal diagnosis, some people can't use the word die or will die or, you know, it's skirted around. The language is fascinatingly um, wishy-washy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, that was the first thing that struck me. And then, you know, I had, um, I was, I was out with um, my husband and he was visiting his friends and, you know, we were just sitting around and their kids were there. I think they were like six or seven and, you know, they're, they're, they're playing and, you know, everyone's having a drink, you know, alcohol and there's all sorts of things going on, like, you know, whatever. And, and I, they asked what I do. And I said, um, I said what I do and I get the usual response of, oh, that's so hard. That must be so sad. And I think I said something up the lines of, yeah, I mean, I do have to, you know, take care of dying children. And I was like, stop, like shut down. Like, oh no, what are you doing? Like, why are you saying the word dying in front of my kid? Like it was very like abrupt. Um, And I was like, oh, okay. Like, you know, we could talk about all sorts of other things, conversations have been had, right? About going out to a club and doing this and 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 I couldn't use the word dying and I was like wow that it, it was just super interesting and I think I mean I think people are scared of dying I don't think I think that's just a societal thing I think part of it is a lack of understanding in our society about what what that even means right like what happens when you're dying what what does it look like um I think shifting away from you know I think if you're a religious person dying is a less taboo topic and that's just that's just a personal observation actually that I don't know if that's true or not um but we've sort of shifted dying and made it a medical process and it's like the process you try and avoid at all times right like if you know you go to the emergency room or you run a code and the goal is to like keep someone alive it right it so it's a very um it's almost like a failure in the healthcare system or in medical school, you're taught, you're doing all these things to keep people alive. So I think it's, I think it's just a shift um, in, in how society perceives it. And that includes the medical field. So it's, I think it's, it's, it's seen as a failure almost now, which is kind of wild to me. Yeah, it's, it is super interesting and I can definitely relate. I work in pharmacy in in the oncology setting more recently and it's definitely still a taboo, even though people are, these are adults population, they're given these diagnoses and they're aware that they're on like a third line or fourth line treatment and they know that there's nothing left. And I remember being in a room with someone trying to explain that to them (laughs) and failing really badly and just the person getting very angry that this was happening Mm -hmm. and making us feel like like the medical system feel like a failure oh why isn't there anything beyond this right Mm -hmm. totally and it's kind of like the concept of of hope 
right? So in, in the oncology world, it, it, we always talk about hope and there's, you know, we got to fight, right? You got to fight mm-hmm. and you're fighting battle and you're winning this battle. And so I just think that the, the language around all of that is fascinating, right? Because I'm often having to tell a family, well, you know, I've never said that there's not hope, right? Like, I, I think we all survive with the idea that there's always hope. I don't think that I give you false hope, but I think we have to hope for different things, right? We can't hope. We can't hope for, we can hope for a cure, but it might not happen. But why don't we hope for a good day, a good day out at the park with less pain, right? So mm-hmm. shifting hope and, and what you're fighting for, I think, is is some of the ways that I've I've tried to like shift the language about the scariness of dying because I think people think hope and dying don't align and I don't think that's actually true. <laughs> I think that one of the things to always think about and how do we shift a concept of dying is trying to communicate to other healthcare professionals, to our family, to, to communities that death is part of living, right? It's, it's, you know, and the cliche of nothing is more, you know, everyone's going to die, right? We, we all know that, but I think shifting the focus of it being a failure, right? It's a failure in the healthcare system is what I think I've recently started to see where it, it's actually not right. It's, it's, it's part of someone's illness journey. It's, it's part of their trajectory. I think that one of the reason ways to shift that is shifting communication, shifting communication and how we communicate what, what lies ahead, what we're worried about preparing people, right. Preparing caregivers about the fragility of someone about, you know, how do we talk to you about what maybe lies ahead? And one of the ways that, you know, I think I'm really interested in communication and I use a tool called the serious illness conversation guide, Mm -hmm. which is a a validated tool, you know, well-known in healthcare. We've adapted it to pediatrics. And, and really that tool is about understanding what someone's hopes, values, wishes, and fears are if their child got sicker. So I think if we can get to know people as human beings rather than just a diagnosis or, you know, a patient, then actually we can start to prepare them. If, if, if we are worried that death is coming, then I think, you know, you have to start at one person, right? So I think communication and, and language and, and taking the, the failure idea out of death is, is one way to look at it or, or start looking at it anyway. I think a second way is we have to look at all the locations of care that people get care, right? So people get care at hospitals. Mm-hmm. They get care at home. They get care at a long-term care facility. They get care at a hospice. They get care at an urgent care. And I think there's a complete lack of continuity and understanding of, of how each area has its benefit and, and how each location of care shifts, right? Like people have to go to hospital for some things, but maybe we can care for them at home for other things, right? So I think um, I think looking at what caregivers need and supporting them in understanding what lies ahead may be able to change the trajectory of making death into a medical situation, right? More people used to die at home. And like the olden days, people died at home. That's where they died. That was what happened. People could be together. There was ritual. There was, you know, prayer, if that's what they believed in. But now more people die in the hospital, right? So I, I believe shifting, shifting location of care 
and demedicalizing death is 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 a way to lessen the taboo is what I think anyway I agree and just um I think this sort of language starts at the beginning of life really because it's something like you said it's a societal thing and I'm wondering if it's more of a western society idea where death is so taboo where it's just so unacceptable that it's if you die, you're, you failed, you haven't been successful in life. But I think the other word, too, um, alongside with uh, failure is just acceptance, too, that this is just the way of life. Yeah, no, it's so true. It's, um, it, you know, and I think, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I volunteer, um, and I was in Nepal last year, and I, I do think, in general, you know, I think just be because more more children die of their diseases there, um, that it's just it is more part of life. And you know, do I think that's fair or right? No, I think they should have you know equal curates that we do. But I think that just out of necessity, right? Um, it, it, you know, people who live in countries low to middle middle income countries just experience death more and it's more part of life and you know but I, I think I think rituals are very important I think um I think you know I've seen there's there's some families who who enter into you know an illness journey and exit it if their child has passed away um with a lot of grace and I don't really know I, I don't even know how to explain it but they have grace and you know that doesn't mean that they're religious or spiritual or what but they they just believe in in something in some sort of meaning to what has happened to their child and their family. So, you know, I think that, um, I think that it would be really interesting to research kind of other areas of the world and, and, and how they view death. Like I've always been interested in that because I, I do think they're different and I, I, you know, I'm just postulating why, but I think it'd be interesting to, to really like interview people who live in various parts of the world and what their perception of death is. Cause obviously I'm speaking from a Western position as you said <laughs> and and I think one of the things that we need to do you know in in the western you know working in Canada for example is 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 really try and understand from a medical system perspective how how we improve the death experience because we're not going to change you know there there's one side that's coming out with all these targeted therapies, right? Like, which is right. Like there, there are kids with leukemia on their fourth or fifth relapse that we can actually maybe save them now still, whereas they would ne- they would have died, you know, even 10 years ago. And that's great. There's targeted therapy. There's immune therapy that's coming out for diseases that were not incurable. And I, I think that's amazing, but there's still some people and children who will die of their disease and, and how do we help the medical system make that experience better? Because I think it could be better. And, and how, how, do we, how do we navigate both, right? Like, and that's kind of where my, you know, my, my split brain works is, you know, working in oncology, I see all these advances and it's amazing. But then I also see a lot of bad death, to be honest, right? Yeah, those are great points. What would you describe as a good death experience? Yeah, I think, you know, this quote-unquote good death, like people, you know, if you look in the literature, people always talk about quote-unquote what was a good death. 
you know, I, I, I don't know. Cause clearly I'm here right now. Right. But I think for me, I think from what I've experienced with families and children, I think what I talk about is a palliative approach to care, which I think all of medicine should do because what that means is it's individualized care, right? It's, it's really getting to know a person for who they are on a physical, emotional, spiritual, social level, getting to know their family and really tailoring your, your treatment plans and plans for the future based on what you know about them. So I think that a good death, quote unquote, starts at the beginning when you get to know someone. And if you're worried about a child that is fragile or has escalating symptoms and is going to die, I think part of a good death experience is is getting to know that family and and understanding what their hopes are if their child got sicker. Because I think again, it's it's you have to be brave. <laughs> you have to be brave to to bring that up with the family. Um, sometimes they don't want to talk about it, but I think in the end, after the child has died, I think, you know, if you, if you, we have lots of counselors at Connect Place who, who do bereavement care. And I've really tried to spend a lot of time with them to learn about like, what did that family think or reflect, you know, a month, three months, six months, five years after their child died? Like what, what was their, what did they reflect on? And like, what did they feel worked or didn't work? Mm-hmm. Because I think like, I can't change what's now happened, but I can always learn from it. Right. So, you know, and what families say is, is less time in hospital, feeling more prepared. Mm-hmm. I wish I hadn't, you know, dragged them to clinic for, you know, that one visit. I wish I had gone to the park instead. I wish I had not written down every single, you know, blood result number in my book. I wish I had written down what my child was saying that day. Right. So, you know, I hear all, you know, and I, I really have tried to, to talk to my friends and colleagues who do bereavement care to learn about that. And so I think preparing families, you know, supporting them in their decision-making, um, really telling them what, what your worries are and, and allowing them space to, to be scared and, and be with them. I think not, you know, making, feeling alone in this is very hard. And so I think supporting families and allowing them the space to feel sad, but also explaining to them that you're there with them. And and again, you're walking them part of the journey with them. I think good physical symptom management is is important no matter what patient you are in terms of a good death. Um, You know, I think location of care plays into that. Some families will say, my child really wants to be home, right? They want to be in their own bed. But if they're not comfortable, then they can't be home, right? So um, I think having flexibility and constant um, discussion with families is is what I think anyway will make for a potential good death. And I think um, valuing their boundaries, like what if they, if they can't care for their child at home, then they can't care for their child at home and we have to figure out what location of care is best for them, right? So I think it all starts with, open dialogue communication and um like good good physical symptom management i think is obviously very important you can't really attend to the emotional and spiritual needs of someone if they're physically not feeling well so um i always remind people that you have to be aggressive with 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 physical symptom management and then hopefully be able to address all of those other 
realms um, and pacing, right? Pacing with a family. How much information are they able to take in today? If they're not, then call them tomorrow again. Come see them tomorrow, right? So, um, you know, I think a, a death is a very complicated thing. A good death is is a more complicated thing. I think there's lots of competencies um, involved in caring for imminent dying and, and children who are dying. Um, and I think we don't teach them enough. I'm learning them as I go. And so um, it's one of my passions is, is educating and training um, and figuring out how how to train um, learners on improving improving how they take care of dying children. As we wrap up this episode, Natasha, what's one key takeaway that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I would say that one of the key takeaways I would say is that don't be scared if you hear someone like me tell you that I'm a pediatric oncologist and palliative care doctor. Um, we have lots of joyful moments and palliative care, just like death, is, is, is part of life and it, it, it shouldn't be a scary topic. So if, if I meet you or you meet someone who works in palliative care or oncology, um, chat with them. Get, get to know what they do. And, and I think the more we talk about death, I think the less scary it becomes, like anything in this world. Great. And how can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, so I've, um, I think if, if anyone's interested in kind of, you know, hearing about Canuck Place Children's Hospice, um, you can feel free to Google us. It's a really fun website. You can get a virtual tour of, um, of, of where I work. Same with Two Worlds Cancer Collaboration. If anyone's interested in learning what we do there, feel free to Google us and, and follow us on Instagram um, or Facebook. And then um, I recently started a podcast with um, my, my colleagues who I volunteer with at Two Worlds called The Sunflower Pediatric Palliative Care Podcast. So it's really a series of podcasts that's on Spotify where you can really learn about pediatric palliative care, just various topics we're, we're interviewing families and healthcare providers and all sorts of people. So if you want to learn more about um, about my role and what, what I do and all the fun things we do, then um, have a list. And I think we have a couple episodes out right now. <laughs> Thank you for listening to On the Edge with your hosts, Nita and Sylvia. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or drop a comment and rating. Head over to sickhealth.ca to learn more about sick and check out all the links and resources in the episode show notes. Thanks and stay tuned for future podcast episodes with On the Edge with Sick.